Ah, oh, where am I? Why can't I move my arms? Am I tied up? Oh, no, no, is this another dumb cold open? Brave words. I've heard them before. From thousands of other hosts on thousands of other podcasts. But now, they are all one. Dave, is this a Star Trek thing? Like, let me go. I'll, I'll finally watch the reboot. I, I'm sorry. Hush now, Jonah. Hush and join us. Dave, what's happened to you? We're journeying to the Starship Enterprise, baby. And I've gone full bore. On this episode, I'm getting back to my roots. Well, I thought you were from, like, northern mid-California. Just like Star Trek First Contact was about the creation of Star Trek, this cold open is about the creation of Borg Queen Dave. Dave, I'm going to be honest, if you have to say it out loud, the performance isn't really working. No time for notes, Jonah, because this is Galaxy Brains, and today we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of Star Trek First Contact with comedian, author, and Trekkie, John Hodgman. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's own Jonathan Frakes, Jonah Ray. And each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, arrive at the blessed state of the galaxy brain. Galaxy brain. Today's episode is a Star Trek extravaganza dedicated to the 25th anniversary of one of the best Trek movies of all time, First Contact. Joining us where no man has gone before is comedian and fellow Trekkie John Hodgman. To sort out what this seminal 90s action classic is actually about, we're going to have to take our thinking to transwarp speed. But before we cross the Great Barrier to Shakaree... What? Star Trek V The Final Frontier. Is that the one with the whales? No, it's not the fucking whales. I remember the one with the whales. Shut your mouth. Okay. There's no whales in that movie. Maybe on screen, but you can't definitively say there's no whales in that universe. I'm not saying there are no whales at all in the universe. I'm saying they don't appear in the film. There's no bodies of water in this movie. I think there's a lake and that's it. That's a good point. Whales. Jesus Christ. Hey, my name's Jonah. I gotta talk about the whales. Anyway, before we get into this topic, we need to 
set the stage in a segment called Logic Brain. Star Trek First Contact is the eighth Star Trek movie and was released in November of 1996. Uh, That's about 25 years ago for those of you without a calculator handy. Yes, 25 years ago, Captain Picard and the crew of the Enterprise-E traveled back in time to stop a Borg invasion of pre-warp drive Earth. And I'm no Star Trek expert, but I do know that this is a semi-sequel to the classic Next Generation two-parter, The Best of Both Worlds. It was the idea of Star Trek head honcho Rick Berman to include time travel in the film. But it was writers Brandon Braga and Ronald D. Moore who suggested the Borg be the antagonists. But the question was, when does the Enterprise travel to? Berman wanted to send the crew to the Renaissance and fight the Borg in a castle. I can imagine this a bit so like a little like, kind of light hammer horror here. You know, Christopher Lee, Dracula. But the Borg as cyber vampires and Picard as a bolder version of Peter Cushing's Van Helsing. I would see that movie in a heartbeat, Jonah. But Brandon Braga disagreed with us. Fool, I would definitely want to see a castle and some Borg. That'd be great. So he suggested that the film be, in a way, about the creation of Star Trek itself. The film starts with perhaps the most elaborate space battle in Star Trek film history. The Borg have once again attempted to invade Earth, but this time, it seems like they might actually win. The Enterprise saves the day in the nick of time, but not before a tiny pod escapes the Borg ship and travels back in time to April 4th, 2063. Mere days before the first ever warp flight by inventor Zephram Cochran. Cochran is played by one of our greatest character actors, Boyo. His name is James Cromwell, who is just coming off an Academy Award nomination for Babe in 1995. And you people, you're all astronauts on some kind of Star Trek. A persistent urban legend is that Rick Berman's first choice for Zephram Cochran was actually Tom Hanks. And he couldn't do it because of his work directing That Thing You Do, which is an awesome movie that made me want to be a drummer. I was already a drummer, and so it was was a very great movie for me. Best drummer movie of all time, I think. You know what? I can't think of another one off the top of my head, so I'm going to give that to you. (laughs) Tune in next year for Galaxy Drums, uh, where we're going to talk about the greatest movie drummers. And we already know the winner. Shades. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's got to be this or I don't know. Yeah, this is it. Even if this urban legend is not true, Berman and the studio set their sights high for this Star Trek movie. Before Commander Riker actor Jonathan Frick signed on to direct the film, both Ridley Scott and diehard director John McTiernan were approached and turned the project down. Ouch. Instead, John McTiernan went to prison. So who made the right choice there? Yeah. (laughs) Frakes, I mean, like, good for him for getting that big movie out there. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's hope for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Ridley Scott and John McTiernan aside, the finished product is still an incredibly fun ride. And I say this very, very much as not a Star Trek guy. And that's something that being in the nerd sphere as much as I have been has been an issue in my life. Yeah. Well, I give you a pass for that. You know, you get a hall pass with me for not liking Star Trek because... Personally, I think it's kind of, uh, it's a niche, you know? Not everybody gets why Star Trek is great, and we're going to get into why Star Trek is great to me later in the episode. But First Contact was a huge hit and became the second highest grossing Star Trek film before factoring in inflation. It's kind of like the Star Trek movie that most people remember, even if you're not a fan, other than, of course, the number one Star Trek movie before inflation at the time, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Whales this time? Yes. Ah, yeah. Whales. Mini whales. 
Swallow me up, whales. Oh, boy. There's no swallowing of anything then. The J.J. Abrams trilogy has since surpassed both Star Trek IV and First Contact as the biggest of the franchise, and yet First Contact still packs quite a punch to this day. But let's go back to something I mentioned earlier, that this film is about the birth of Star Trek. What exactly does that mean? To figure that out, we're going to have to set our phasers to, hmm, in another edition of Critical Brain. Jonah, you have said multiple times you are not really a Star Trek fan. What is your relationship to Star Trek besides not really understanding it? I want to say I didn't understand it. It just wasn't my, for lack of a less Southern California term, vibration. Um, <laughs> I just, you know, I didn't click with it. Yeah, yeah. It was just a thing where, I mean, I think as a kid that was a bit anxious and a bit ADHD, like I think it was just a bit too slow paced for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would always say like Star Trek The Next Generation to me always felt like Sunday afternoon. It's, it's a term I use to describe stuff sometimes where I go, I don't know, it feels like Sunday like evening afternoon where it's before like The Simpsons start, but it's in that like weird spot in the weekend where you can't really do much. You got school the next morning. You're starting to think about the homework you didn't do over the weekend. <laughs> Yeah, it is absolutely Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. It was one of those things where it was like, yeah, this is a very languidly paced show where there's a lot of talking and people solve their problems with their brains instead of their fists. And I always found that appealing. But what's interesting about First Contact is that it is a movie where people solve their problems with their fists, where Picard shoots a guy with a Tommy gun. And it's, in some ways, a horror movie. So I think this is probably the only Star Trek film where you can really sink your personal teeth into it. Even that that shot, the Borg perspective shot, the Borg POV that stretched out, wibbly-wobbly, kind of like go, floating through the corridors shot, that is very much a late 90s horror trope. Studio film horror trope that, and yeah, there is a lot of uh, horror elements to it. There's a lot of action and the movie does a good job of like, it's like, I know pop culturally the Borg, but this does a good job of making them seem very scary right away. Watch your future's end. Yeah. In the TV show, they were just very pasty faced zombies with various plastic parts glued onto them. So they weren't scary necessarily. The idea that they couldn't be defeated was scary to, you know, seven-year-olds me. Yeah. But the movie was able to hypercharge the look of the thing, and they looked more like festering or fetid sort of organic material being consumed by technology. You know, like the tubes and stuff coming out of their faces, and it looks like they're decaying in some way. And so it was much scarier that way. And I'm not surprised that people who may not have been Star Trek fans saw this and were like, oh, okay, I get this. This is cool. Uh, This is the movie that really made the next generation work on screen. And one of the reasons why the next generation was such a phenomenon in the 90s, why it was such a pop culture sort of monolith is Patrick Stewart. They invade our space and we fall back. They assimilate entire worlds we fall back. Not again. The line must be drawn here. And this is the movie where he gets absolutely jacked. He's so ripped. The whole end scene where he's like hanging from the tubes. He does a Tarzan swing on with the tube. He's in a tank top and he's just really showing off those. I mean, he, he must have only been, what, 45? 
He's a younger man, yeah. I always just assumed he was he was 70. That's why it seems like he's lived forever because he's looked old for a long time. Yeah, but also he was bald. Yeah. I think that's why he looked old. He had alopecia or has alopecia. And so he went bald very early. And a lot of the scuttlebutt around the creation of Next Generation is Gene Roddenberry did not want Patrick Stewart to play that part because he said, I will not have a bald man play the captain of the Enterprise. And they talked about fitting him with a toupee and all kinds of things. Wow, really? That's, well, I mean, is the idea, is that Roddenberry idea of like a perfect future means no one would have to go bald? I'm sure that was part of it. At the same time, though, that's it's odd, the the stigma behind it. Like something that really happens to mostly every guy. And it's like, for it to be, have been such a sticking point for so long. I think it's also because men have historically been embarrassed to go bald, even though it all it happens to all of us or most of us, like you said. It's a sign that you're not virile. You know, it's a sign that like, oh, you're getting older and you're going to die one day. So that's why people go to the extreme lengths of hair plugs and, and Shatner-esque toupees. Doesn't it mean that like it, going bald and I'm not too sure because I'm too scared to look it up. But like, doesn't it mean like it's like you have too much testosterone? Wouldn't going bald early be a sign of being very a tough guy to defend the tribe? That's not how our society developed. Our popular culture says. Well, it's, it's how Patrick Stewart developed. But yeah, Patrick Stewart and Michael Jordan were both celebrities around the same time and made being bald awesome for both black people and white people. So shouts to them for getting rid of the stigma of being a bald man. Galaxy balds. <laughs> Galaxy balds. Stop it. Get some help. Let's also talk about Brent Spiner. Resistance is futile. This is also a data movie. Patrick Stewart gets the big soliloquies and the, the monologues and and uh, all the stuff about revenge and Moby Dick and whatnot. Whales! And he does mention whales. You're right. God damn it. There is a, this is the one with the whale. It's just one whale and it's a fictional one and you don't see him. Mark it, Kylie. Producer Kylie, mark it. That's a win for me. <laughs> Brent was just part of the cast of the show, right? If you watch an old episode of Next Generation, it starts with a thrilling score by Jerry Goldsmith, and then it says, starring Patrick Stewart as Captain Jean-Luc Picard. And then it says, also starring Jonathan Frakes as Commander William T. Riker. Brent Spiner was just also starring. Like, he was just one of the other cast members. Yeah. But by the time the movie started, he had third billing. Do you think that was because there was a response from the fans? Yeah, it's just like, oh, look at look at how popular the toys are. Look at how popular he is. Data was the Spock of the show. And so when they were going to the movies, clearly his agent was able to negotiate some leverage for him because every movie in this franchise of the four movies, they're all kind of basically just about Data and Picard. His subplot here is that he is seduced by the Borg Queen. And I remember watching this movie when I was a kid and not understanding why I felt this way about this woman. Watching it now, it's still pretty sexy when she sort of seduces him and blows on his organic skin. And he gets goosebumps. Yeah. And she asks him if he's fully functional. And the last time he was intimate and he talks about the episode of season one of The Next Generation where he has sex with Tasha Yar. Have you forgotten? I'm endeavoring to become more human. Human. We used to be exactly like them. Flawed, weak, organic. Ooh, what a scene. Like her design, her entrance is very Giger, where it's uh, just this uh, mechanical, sexy, 
like being put together with her spinal cord type thing kind of wiggling around and being entered into her body. It's a very sexy entrance for a uh, villain. Yeah, no wonder they wanted to get Ridley Scott to direct this movie because it has shades of alien and the the kind of claustrophobic horror that alien really perfected back in the in the late 70s. And that scene, like you said, of of her coming down from the ceiling and attaching to her her body is both grotesque and beautiful. There's something kind of operatic about it. I just wish they really, like, for that entrance, though, they would have had a needle drop of O Industry from Beaches by Bette Midler. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, you will become one of us. Like, meow, 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 meow. I am the captain. It would be the perfect song. <laughs> I haven't watched Beaches in a long time. I haven't watched Beaches in probably 10 years, but I've listened to that song probably once a month for the past 10 years. Oh, Industry by Bette Midler in, from the Beaches soundtrack is a fucking jammer. <laughs> we got to get together and watch Beaches. Pop some frosty cold ones and watch Beaches together. I'm all the way down. Like two bros do. It's, a, it's good, but that's, that song should have been there in that, in that moment, and I, I will stand by that. That's my Galaxy Brain take. There should all The whole soundtrack should have been needle drops from Beaches. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about the Borg, because I've always felt like the Borg are kind of the dark side of Star Trek's utopian vision. They're the end result, I think, right? If Star Trek is a socialist utopia, then the dark side of that to most people who are, you know, anti-socialism, anti-communism, anti any sort of sharing of the means of production. And that dark side is collectivist thinking and a lack of individuality. So the Borg are kind of like a dark mirror of the Federation, which does go around. Starfleet does go around bringing other worlds into the Federation, into their culture, making them a part of their utopia. But the Borg does that through force and through technology. And that's interesting to me. You can draw those parallels if you really want to. But then anything in extremes is bad. And I think there's, uh, you know, they do it through violence, which, uh, of course, makes it a bad thing where the Federation, they, like you said, they just try to use words and just try to, like, appeal to the hearts. And I mean, I, that's my take on much of the socialist movement is that people are growing hearts. Yeah. And I think a lot of what is interesting about First Contact, what's fun about it is that you have these, these utopian idealists who are winning people over with their hearts. And then you put this incredibly cynical drunk man in front of them who's like, who cares? And he reveals that he just, he was doing it for money. He didn't care about any of the stuff. It's like, so it, he's just this dude that's drunk, that has smart, that has this idea. And he's just like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make my money. I'm going to fucking get out of here. And it's because he has these individual freedoms provided to him because of like a, like a collapse of society almost. <laughs> yeah, he's really taking advantage of the libertarian vibes of 2063. He would not be able to get the permits or the funding to make his uh, you know, warp rocket if it was like you know, all the red tape that would have had to happen in the American government. <laughs> Just let me innovate for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> in 2063 in this Star Trek universe, the planet is ruled by a series of coalitions and, and warlords. And so he's kind of like, he's on his own in this in this kind of community trying to build this, this rocket. And he, so he's sort of like a lost hippie in a way. So I, I've always thought of this movie as kind of like about boomer, baby boomer cynicism and how baby boomers eventually lose their 
their idealism at some point and then just become kind of focused on how do you make money? Because it's all about freedom, man. It's not about peace and love. It's about freedom and money. I mean, uh, a very interesting documentary that I implore everybody to watch, a British documentary called The Century of Self, does a really good job of going back to the early 1900s and just kind of plotting the direction of business as the thing that kind of really destroyed and changed everyone's points of view uh, when it comes to government and socialism and being kind to each other. And it really shows the hippie movement as, you know, they were going against the the post-war boom. And then when they tried to have a revolution, they got shot on college campuses. And so they're like, fine, it's like the collective's not going to work. I'm just going to like release myself from the government and start a company that I won't like pay taxes to the government for because the government will use it to shoot my friends on a college campus. And so there is that cynicism that happens when you just kind of, you know, you have your ideals and you get your ass handed to you. That's the thing about Star Trek. The, the great thing to me is that Star Trek is one of the few contemporary franchises that's very clearly about one thing. Science and technology will allow us uh, as human beings to evolve into a higher plane of existence. You know, that's the thing that's going to that's gonna save us. That's what this whole movie is about. I mean, I got to say my iPhone has definitely made me a better person. See? <laughs> no, no, I was fucking joking, Dave. Come on, my phone has Twitter on it. You can harass a complete stranger <laughs> with just a single click of a button. It's not even a button. It's just you can just tap on a screen. There's less effort to touch a screen than to click a button. That's not good, Dave. I'm not saying Star Trek's uh, ideas are fully outdated, but yes, maybe we need to rethink that a bit. The other thing Star Trek is about is a collective good, which we were talking about before. What Gene Roddenberry created was a vision of a socialist utopia, whereas Picard said in that scene with Lily, there's no money. Okay, I'm I'm on board with that. People have lost sight of how radical Star Trek really was. Gene Roddenberry was making a political statement with Star Trek in the 60s. He envisioned a world where humanity has united around exploration, curiosity, and helping each other. It makes me cry just thinking about it. Dave, go to your angry place. Think about sitting in traffic, credit card bills, bad tippers, people who wear brown shoes with black pants. All right, all right. I'm back. I'm back. I'm fine. I'm, I'm not crying anymore. No, no, Dave. No, you're going back to crying. Do not go to crying. Listen, literally last night I went out, I was wearing black pants with brown shoes. You stupid fool. <laughs> He's back, baby. Also, consider this. Gene Ronberry wrote this cool show called Star Trek, but he was also an incredibly complicated man with his fair share of demons, according to the people who worked with him. I'm, I'm sure you've heard those stories. Oh, 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 yeah. You know who else was complicated? Zephram Cochran, inventor of Warp Drive. He was a drunk and a narcissist, a greedy cynic who just wanted to make a buck off of his invention. Oh, Dave, are you comparing Zephram Cochran to Gene Roddenberry? Yes, in fact, I think maybe Star Trek is actually about Gene Roddenberry creating Star Trek, a complicated man who comes up with something beautiful. Computer Arch! Wait, hey, Dave, Dave, where are you going? What the fuck are you going? This is a holodeck simulation of the podcast, right? No, this is your basement. What the fuck does computer arch mean? That's what you say when you want the holodeck doors to open. A little arch appears with the screen and some stuff. And there's a big door and you can just walk out. No, Dave, this is your mom's basement for real. Remember we had to record here because your girlfriend Holly has a strict no Star Trek rule in the house? So if I climb those stairs and walk out that door. It'll be in your mom's kitchen. But I heard she made tacos. Dave? Dinner's ready, honey. Well, Jonah eats my mother's home cooking. We're going to take a quick break. 
When we return, we'll be joined by John Hodgman, who might have some thoughts on my whole Roddenberry theory. Hey, Dave's mom, your son thinks he's on a holodeck of the Enterprise. (laughs) I know, what a dweeb. I heard that, and I deeply resent you. Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. We've dropped out of warp and are now orbiting the farthest recesses of our minds. I think I blew Jonah away with that theory on Gene Roddenberry. But to confirm or deny this boldly going hypothesis, we've recruited the brilliant John Hodgman to be this week's final arbiter of truth. John, thank you so much for joining us this week to talk about Star Trek First Contact. All rise. Oh, thank you very much, Dave. Thank you, Jonah, for screaming, making an obscure cultural reference, specifically to my podcast, the Judge John Hodgman podcast, where I settle internet disputes uh, and make obscure cultural references. But I don't know that I've ever made an obscure cultural reference to Star Trek First Contact, even though it is a movie that I love. I think maybe I never thought of it as obscure enough. Yeah, it really isn't obscure. This was a huge hit in 1996. I loved this movie. I saw it in a theater opening weekend with my two brothers and my older brother fell asleep during the movie. (laughs) So I really, I will always remember how kind he was to accompany 12 year old me to the movies and then fall asleep halfway through. Well, you are younger than me. I was in the prime of my twenties in New York city. And how did I spend it? I was not nightclubbing. I was going to go see Star Trek first contact, probably with Jonathan Colton. And I remember loving it a lot, especially after Star Trek Generations. No offense. That's the most common reference I make of Star Trek is Star Trek Generations. Anytime I'm with like an older person from the original Mystery Science Theater and I take a picture of them, I'll always caption it, Mystery Science Theater Generations. (laughs) (laughs) Generations didn't work for a lot of people. I have a lot of affection for that movie because it still feels a little bit like the TV show. It still is very thoughtful. It's a it's a meditation on grief, as Jonah likes to bring up. <laughs> where Picard, yeah, Picard's brother and his nephew die. Yeah. Time is the fire in which we burn. Yeah, that's that was crazy. That was a crazy way to start that movie. Absolutely. It's a beautiful little treatise on on why it's worth living. So Generations doesn't work for most people. It kills Kirk. People are mad. They're shaking their fists. How dare you do this? He dies in the silliest way possible, which is flipping seven times on a bridge and then getting squished and then saying, oh, my, which was Shatner's idea, by the way. So stop complaining. Uh But First Contact is a huge hit. It's the second highest grossing Star Trek to that point. What was it about that movie that made Star Trek work on the big screen? Because the next two are kind of bombs. They're not great. So why was this one the one that really clicked for audiences back then? Quilted uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> Not just the outer uniform is quilted, but the, the, the turtleneck is quilted too. Yeah. yeah. Lots of good detail on those uniforms. I love those uniforms. And I, I'm on record as really wanting the untold story of, in the Star Trek universe and the canon is who's in charge of picking the new uniforms <laughs> and why do they do it? Why so often? <laughs> They're constantly changing uniforms. They have no in-universe explanation for the wild fashion changes that go between the original series, the motion picture, between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan. There's a full fleet-wide redesign, which obviously 
the red double-breasted jacket with the with the white or various colored turtlenecks much more favorable to, shall we say, older male actors. <laughs> <laughs> I like to pretend that there is a 24-hour news channel in the 23rd century just complaining about the uniforms all the time. Oh, God, why are they wearing these, uh, these gray pajamas? They look like fools. Why do our collective tax monies that don't exist have to go to paying for these new outfits? Right, exactly, because there's no... We have no money in this in this, this beautiful future. Yes. Yeah. We, de- we define ourselves by our passions or whatever. I'm being a little bit facetious, but also honest. Like when those new uniforms popped up, I felt like, oh, okay, we're in a new world now, as it were. The cinematic world of these characters is making a break from the show, which I felt was necessary. Uh, it just felt like the movie was giving itself permission to go and do something new and different. What's interesting, though, is that the movie also is so successful for two reasons. One, I think Star Trek, the next generation, it had come to an end, right, at that point? Yeah, it ended in summer of 94. Generations came out in the fall of 94. And then First Contact came out in 96. Right. So I feel like the next generation was kind of at at the height of its cultural power when it ended. And we missed them. We were thrilled to see them back in action in a new enterprise. That was very exciting. And I felt that the movie overall was a very interesting love letter to the next generation and the franchise overall. There were many, many winks and nods and in-jokes and favorite character actors showing up in different places. I just remember feeling like really heard and felt as a fan while watching this movie. Yeah, the Defiant shows up in the first act battle scene. And Worf has this great moment where he's like going to ram it into the Borg cube. And Yeah, Riker says, tough little ship. And Worf says, what do you mean little? Yeah. <laughs> a great line. A lot of good comedy in this. It was maybe the, the most popular time for Star Trek ever. Maybe only eclipsed by when the first movie came out. But I think to your point, this is a love letter to Star Trek, but it's also very meta. This is the only movie, to my knowledge, that has the word Star Trek in the script where someone says, what are you people on some kind of Star Trek? <laughs> is what Zephram Cochran says that to Riker and, and Jordy, I believe. Very meta movie, very kind of winky. We talked about this earlier. It's also a movie about hope, creativity, and self-destruction. Both Picard and Cochran are kind of like trying to destroy their whole lives through the whole movie. They're constantly like, Revenge consumes me or greed consumes me in, in, the, in the case of Cochrane. Am I off base here in saying that this movie is so meta that it's actually about Star Trek itself and the creation of Star Trek? I don't think that... Sorry, Jonah, do you want to take this one? <laughs> you know, yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think it is... John, you take the rest. <laughs> okay. I think that it is a little too meta for its time the height of Star Trek, as you say, all of these cultural references were not obscure. Also, in the mid-90s were all about meta. You know, this was the, if I may say, Jonah, this was the the golden era, original era of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yes. Where TV shows were aware that you were watching them. Definitely. And also Scream came out the same year. Yeah. Good point. Pop was eating itself. Exactly. And that's fine. I mean, I that's that's my era. But Watching, particularly the Defiant thing, watching this movie again this week, I was like, who's going to know what that ship is? The Next Generation, 
There are lots and lots of people who watch it all the time. It's constantly being rediscovered. I presume that's true for Deep Space Nine and Voyager. But how steeped are you going to be in all three of those that you would necessarily know the significance of that ship and why Worf was on it instead of on the Enterprise? It's the Marvel problem, though. Marvel has the same thing going on, but on a grander scale and that they've got TV shows, they've got movies, they've got cartoons. They have all this material that is constantly commenting upon itself. Right. Eternals takes the time to mention the Avengers and who's going to be the leader of the Avengers and all this stuff that, you know, outside of the context of this massive universe is irrelevant to the story being told at the time. So the Defiant showing up in uh, the first battle scene seems kind of strange if you don't know why Worf is on the Defiant, what the Defiant is, where it's from. But the same thing can be true of any movie that comes out now <laughs> that is beholden to other franchises, other movies, Ghostbusters Afterlife, same thing. Well, there's an incredible energy to pop culture that makes reference to itself. The thing about the accomplishment of the Marvel Universe for me always was, well, you emulated what you did, what they were doing in the comics. You know, they built a world in the comics where Tony Stark would cross over in another comic or there would be references. that It was a shared universe. You know, what's interesting to me is I was about to say my standard line is that it never happened before the MCU. But in fact, it had happened in the Star Trek movies. It was the ori- one of the original shared universe cross-platform franchises. I'm not saying that they did anything wrong in, in the mid-90s when they made First Contact this way by making reference to this shared universe. But Marvel should take a lesson, I think, which is at some point this we have to turn the page on this shared universe because it'll, it'll recede in time. And we don't know that people are going to have all these references available to them at their fingertips in the same way. How do we how do we start a new shared universe, as it were? Yeah, these things kind of have to live on their own. And, and despite the kind of weird callbacks and references, uh, Warp on the Defiant being the biggest example, or just like the reveal of the Vulcans as the first aliens to meet humans. It's played as this big moment of, oh my God, it was Vulcans. Just like Spock. Right. Like, if you don't know who Spock is because you just put this movie on TNT or something, you're going to be totally underwhelmed. It is also odd that, like, they come out, you haven't revealed the ears yet. They just look like humanoid beings. And then they have to give James Cromwell that line. It's like, wow, they are from another world. Or what does he say? Wow, they are aliens. It's like, what are you talking? There's these bipedal skinned people with two eyes and a mouth and a nose. Is that really what you thought aliens were going to look like when they showed up? Because they sure did make a meal out of the the ear reveal. They sure did. It was a massive, massive deal. And I loved it. Well, you think anyone in the audience was like, hmm, I don't know, maybe. They have these huge eyebrows and they look just like Spock and they're wearing this hood. (laughs) What kind of ears will they have? Like, come on. We knew what was going on here. I'm a sick, deviant person who cries every time I watch this scene. I'll tell you what, I'm going to push back on you a little bit here, Dave, because that's the kind of cultural reference that is not obscure. Like, if you're in a Star Trek movie at all, you know who Spock is, you know who the Vulcans are, you know the, you know of the special relationship between <laughs> Terra and Vulcan. Yeah. And so I think that that was an, a really iconic, beautiful moment, too, even though I thought it was silly that they, they had to do the big ear reveal. Like, we get it. We get who they are. But I want to talk a bit more about Zephram Cochran because he goes to the heart of what this movie is to me. And I think a lot about Gene Roddenberry as the creator of Star Trek and Zephram Cochran in the context of the meta movie that we are watching. 
is the creator of Star Trek. He says the words. He invents warp drive. He meets a, a Vulcan for the first time. He's sort of like the Kirk to this guy's Spock in the sense that he's this volatile human being with a lot of flaws who meets this very logical person and they have a moment of understanding. I always have thought of Zephram Cochran as basically just a stand-in for Gene Roddenberry. The Gene Roddenberry has been said by many people, including his assistant, Susan Sackett, in her book, and a lot of other people who've worked with him, that he was kind of a volatile, difficult man. Uh, and that's kind of what Zephram Cochran's arc is, is he starts off as this guy who's just trying to make money and make a book. And Star Trek was a, a means to an end for Gene Roddenberry. But then it becomes this cultural phenomenon, and he changes the world in a lot of ways. Do you see any of this parallel, or am I completely off base? No, I, I think to continue your sports metaphor, you are on base. You are safe. <laughs> I know you love baseball, John. So this is... I love, yeah. love baseball, and I love it. You just, you just threw a home base. I mean, you did a good job. Touchdown, indeed. Yeah. I'm not completely familiar with the behind-the-scenes true life of Gene Roddenberry, but I'm certainly familiar with his deification, you know, and the shadow as a creator that he cast and whether certain storylines would be considered Gene enough or not Gene enough. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, whether it's acknowledged or not, there's definitely a feeling of, you know, don't meet your heroes. They're, they're flawed people. They're human beings. That's not even subtext in the movie. It's text. Like Even like more than 10 years prior to this was, I think, the big cultural shift in the culture of Star Trek, which was the uh, Saturday Night Live sketch with William Shatner yelling at the fans to get a life. It did remind me of that thing of just these, all the nerds coming up to Cochran and, you know, being excited, him going like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know? <laughs> when he says, a statue? And he's so horrified that he gets a statue at some point. Because he doesn't see himself as that important. And I think that's probably true of most people that we deify. Well, yeah. I mean, and you know, like Gene Roddenberry created a calm, egalitarian, socialist utopia of tolerance probably because he didn't that didn't exist in his own mind. Yeah. yeah. That was a projection of something that he wished for that he didn't have, a piece of a piece of mind that he didn't have. You know, maybe going back to something that Dave and I talked about earlier is uh maybe money did fucking make him like this irritable drunk. Maybe he he really thought like if only money didn't exist, I wouldn't have to worry about this stuff all the time. Oh, right. There is something to that like getting rid of money, all of a sudden everyone's like Oof. And that's the kind of the idea of like universal basic income. Yeah, right. I was just going to say it's 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 part it's part of our cultural moment now. It's like well, after we shut down the economy for a year and people don't feel like going back to work at those shitty jobs, we're all all of a sudden thinking like, is there another way to do this? Like, yeah, yeah. And Gene Roddenberry also created a world where sex was completely different than how we perceive it now, and. The idea of sexuality is more just like, yeah, we have sex and we can have sex with lots of different people or aliens or whatever. It was more like chill in that respect. And that was something that he was projecting in the real world, too. It's yeah, like, he wanted to have sex with everybody. He wanted everybody to have green skin and he wanted to have sex with them. Yeah. Yeah. Like Kirk and Riker, you know, those are <laughs> the men about town. And this is something that I noticed on my second or third viewing or whatever it is. Picard. Like, there is obviously vibes between Picard and Lily. Yes. And this is the first time that you really see, in my memory, you really see Picard veering into Kirk territory. You know, just unloading that Tommy gun at those Borg and then going to just try to crush that Borg's head in 
and she's got to pull him back was itself a very un unpicardian, which was great. It was explored in the movie. It was the point of the movie. I'm not saying it's a flaw, but it's like, you know, they never really reckoned with what it was to have his whole personhood taken away when he became Locutus of Borg. And now they're doing it. And the rage and and emotion that that brings to the surface is very Kirkian in a way. And that's cool. He kisses Lily on the cheek, but there's clearly a moment is like, uh, yeah, that was fun hanging around with you in space and being your boyfriend for a while, but I got to go now with my crew. See you later on this. That was very Kirkian as well. Like, yeah. There is that huge element of, a, you know, Picard is the type of character that is so confident in who he is and what he does and where he's going and what he has in his life. And to have that taken away, it's like, you know, when the, when your identity, when yourself, you're, you're stripped, you're gonna, you're gonna respond with just pure anger because it's like you have nothing else. Well, he, I mean, you know, he was violated. That two-parter is season what? Season three into season four. Right. And how many seasons were there? Seven. Right. So uh, had we reckoned with the PTSD of being violated? There was a subsequent Borg episode or two. There was two, actually. There was I, Borg, which is the Hugh episode where Picard is going to put a virus into him and kill all the Borg, and he changes his mind. He's like, that's not a good thing to do. I shouldn't do that. That's called genocide. So they had brought the Borg back, but not in such a present and clear way. They had never explored Picard's trauma in the way. And so you open by saying, why was this such a big hit? So obviously, it's very Star Trek-y. It's very very fan-friendly. It looks good, cool quilted costumes. But the other thing is, there are, two, there are two other reasons. One, a good villain. Two, a good script. So the Borg are a great villain. You know, most, most of this is a workplace soap opera. You know what I mean? With some philosophical overtones. The Borg, while obviously kind of uh, an homage, shall we say, to the Cybermen of Doctor Who, long preceding, but the Borg were a big science fiction concept, that this was a hive mind that existed only to assimilate and there there were no cultural differences <laughs> other than that. Like, Well, we were talking earlier, John, about how the Borg are kind of the dark mirror of the Federation. And the Federation goes around assimilating cultures into their monoculture, which is the Federation. And they have their, their values that they impart upon civilizations across the galaxy. Yeah, but they still let you wear your little sash or your special nose ring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're r- respectful of differences. But what is the dark side of all of that that need to colonize, even if it's colonization of the mind and it is, you know, creating a unified government? The dark side is that you do lose yourself. You lose your individuality and identity. Uh, so I think that's what uh, makes the Borg the most compelling. Yeah, that's a very interesting point that I had never really considered, Dave. And, it, it, you know, it speaks to it's the classic, we're not so different, you and I. Yeah, <laughs> like, Batman and the Joker. Yeah. And, you know, that speaks to the writing. And it's Brandon Braga and Ronald D. Moore. This is a very, very smartly constructed script. Even when there's no dialogue, like the whole sequence on the particle emitter is essentially a silent movie. That moment where Worf gets a cut in his spacesuit. And it was like a compression failure in 45 seconds or whatever. First thought you have is, why don't they have better spacesuits? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for God's sakes, they've got all this technology and they've got the suits you can come with. Yeah, them. you don't have a fail safe for this. That was a little embarrassing. The fix, though, the fix was a great reveal. Yeah, the fix was a great reveal. And his little like 90s action movie one-liner, assimilate this. Great stuff. Jonathan, I have an idea. Just a pitch real quick. Uh, what if I say assimilate this bitch? 
Is that no? <laughs> no, Jonathan. Okay, copy that. Copy that. Noted. Noted. That's Michael Dorn pitching that line. Yeah, that's Michael Dorn pitching that line. The fix that he does, creating the tourniquet out of the loose Borg part or whatever. And that reveal is such elegant cinematic storytelling. Except his leg would have froze off. That's the thing. Okay. <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson over here telling me why I can't have fun with my movie. All right. Dave, I got this covered. Jonah, he's a Klingon. Shut up. You don't know. <laughs> you're, you're right. You're right. Yeah. His blood freezes at a different temperature. Okay? <laughs> yeah. He's a Klingon. How many hearts does a Klingon have? They have two hearts. And they have pink blood. They have pink blood. They have two hearts. They have they have weird bone structure. They have massive redundancy, survival redundancy built into their very physiognomy. That's what I remember. And uh, uh, that's canon. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm I'm not going to argue with it. I think that's a great response. Thank you so much. See, that's all it takes, Dave. Can I just say one thing about this movie that like I love James Cromwell. I love his portrayal of Zephyrin Cochran. It's obviously canon. But enough with the rock and roll. That really bugged me. <laughs> I was just like, could this could this guy get any more boomer? Seriously? That's a good point. Yeah. It's 2063 and he's listening to Roy Orbison. <laughs> that just didn't track for me. I'm sorry to say. So wait, people, you know, centuries later listening to Bach and Mozart tracks? Yeah, it's the equivalent of like, he's putting on like Sousa marches. That was equally... <laughs> It's supposed to make him look cool to boomers who went to see Star Trek First Contact when it came out. Of course. Of course, I understand that it's situated in time. Do you know what I mean? Like, and Gene Roddenberry, you know, is a boomer, right? Or an early boomer. I don't know. No, he was great. Maybe greatest generation. But you know what I'm saying. There's an element of hippiedom that's come down from the original Star Trek to the next generation that is reflected in Zephram Cochran in this movie, where he's kind of like a dis dismissed and depressed hippie, like a cynical hippie. Yeah, exactly. With his Jughead hat on. But, uh, you know, in the mid-90s, we could still believe that rock and roll would never die. But now, 2021... It, in fact, has. Rock and roll is it's an, a niche art form. Might, might as well be listening to Tuvan Throat Sing. <laughs> Load up on guns. Yeah, it could be listening to Chant. That's its favorite album. Chant. I love from the callbacks and things that, that are not in sense. the episode. <laughs> yeah, but people will, <laughs> people know. will people know. People will know. This was probably one of those things they talked about before they started recording. Okay, sure, that's fun. They have fun. All right, that was it. Those were my only gripes with the movie. I just had to get them out there. I'm glad you did. Thank you, John. Totally understandable. Uh, like in, in context, I completely understand. I love the movie. Ron Moore, call me. Yes, please put John in the next season of For All Mankind, please. This was an absolute treat. Thank you so much for nerding out with me and uh, humoring my bizarre takes on Star Trek First Contact. They're not bizarre. They were very, they were very um, in the pool pocket of, no, that's a game, I guess. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty smart. I have 15 more pages of notes, but okay, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you again, and uh, live long and prosper, John. And to you. As you know by now, each week we wrap up the show with a galaxy brain take from one of our listeners. Here's one now. Hi, my name is Justin Starr from New York. The way you were describing Laurie Strode in the Halloween episode, the years she stayed lying in wait and training for the day that Michael Myers would return sounded very familiar to me. What if Halloween, Michael Myers, Laurie Strode all take place in a multiverse that involves the Terminator? That's right. Laurie Strode has very, very similar kind of story element, story arc to John Connor's mom, whose name escapes me at the moment, 
What if there was even a crossover? What if Michael Myers himself is a robot sent back in time? Interesting. Have a great day. Ooh, Justin, what a great idea. I mean, I hesitate to give any sort of definitive definition of what Michael Myers is, but a time traveler from the future designed to kill Laurie Strode is fascinating. I guess I wonder... Why would want to kill Lori? Um, I mean, we don't know. Maybe she's starting to get pretty wild-eyed. Maybe she, we don't know. We don't know. Maybe she was going to kill Tommy that night. Maybe that was her plan, to secretly kill Tommy. Tommy is important to the future? How? Maybe if things had gone differently, like they were supposed to, he was supposed to be a baseball player. He could swing that bat. You know, at first I was kind of hesitant about this galaxy brain tank, but he was like, he's a child. And it's, it's like, oh, but maybe he was switched out as a child by a young, almost Manchurian candidate style. So back in time, they swap out young Michael Myers with this Manchurian candidate, Michael Myers, or they, they zoom him to the future and they mess with his brain. They zoom him back. And then he goes to kill Laurie. It doesn't work. And then he he's stuck in that asylum for a while and then finally like it something happens and it turns back on he's like oh i gotta go time to do the thing again <laughs> time to do the thing again that's gonna be the next that's halloween kills time to do the thing again <laughs> <laughs> we have to save tommy so we can star in the breakfast club yes that's this exactly <laughs> otherwise how we're gonna have that teen classic directed by john hughes i don't know if you want to call in we'd love to hear your galaxy brain take on next week's episode topic the classic cult comedy death becomes her our number is 213-570-8069 and is also listed in our show notes. Give us a call and leave a voicemail with your take. And also, please, while you're at it, how about leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? Maybe that would make you feel better. Huh? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about giving back? We give you so much. We give you so much. Yeah, well, you don't have to pay for this show. This is a free podcast for you. You know what time we wake up to do this thing on the West Coast? Super early. Yeah, I'm still dragging ass. <laughs> so give back. Listen to the Star Trek ethos and, and give back to your fellow man and woman. Please. Yeah, and maybe we'll get to a spot in the future where Dave won't have an ass to <laughs> drag. <laughs> a holeless society. Everyone's dream. <laughs> That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Next week, we are drinking whatever Isabella Rossellini's serving with the iconic campy comedy Death Becomes Her with podcaster and film historian Karina Longworth. But before we do that, the credits must be read here, this far, no farther. And I will thank them for what they've done. Galaxy Brains is produced by Kali Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautam Shrikashin. Our executive producer is Matt Patches, and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant, and Russ Freshtick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melnizik, who helped create the show. Until next time, I'm Jonah, and I gotta go number two. And I'm Dave. Make it show. Make it show.